Alright, you guys wanna just get right into it? Alright, Dom, I'm super excited to have you here. As a podcast host, podcast guests are a bit like children. You're not really supposed to have favorites, but I've been really looking forward to getting you on because you were the very first person from the Redwood community that I ever interacted with. This was back, I think, in like June. You had just put out the very first newsletter. We had talked a little bit about that and went back and forth. You were super kind, super welcoming. I felt like it really set the tone for like what the Redwood community is like. So I'm really happy to have you on here and to get to learn a little bit about you. Thank you. I'm flattered by that. I definitely got the kindness from David and Rob, just how they welcomed me in to the community. I just wanted to pay it forward. I feel like I don't even deserve to be anyone's favorite. There's so many like cooler people in Redwood. David's done so much for helping us kind of like anytime we're like feeling a little unsaid or uneasy but that's cool that like you know like you write the newsletter and you send it out and you wonder like who's reading it what are they thinking and yeah you were the first one to contact me it was really cool it's just amazing how many uh relationships are have started from redwood i got into it just to do web dev but i find i'm like meeting all these crazy people it's almost more worth it it seems like than anything i've made with it so far yeah, it's what Kim said, actually, in her talk yesterday. Kim Adeline, she'll hopefully be on the show at some point, too. She said, um, I came for the contributions, but I stayed for the community. Beautiful way to put it. Her talk was amazing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm kind of curious what your background is, how you got into programming. I think you were someone who didn't originally study computer science or anything like that, and you've kind of found your way to it a little bit like me. So why don't you just give us a little bit of like your background? I think the first time I knew about programming was in high school, maybe at the end of my senior year, I took a programming class that was just an absolute joke. Like, I don't think I learned anything at all. I think it was like about Java, but I honestly couldn't tell you. And I went into college as a biochem major only because I liked both of those subjects and just like planned on maybe going to med school. It was just like this hazy possibility, which I'm not sure if you want to be a doctor, you should probably know a little bit more than like an inkling but I thought okay well if I don't want to be a doctor I should at least learn something about computers I felt like a little uncomfortable knowing like nothing at all about programming and just how to use a computer because you know like you use one every day I decided to do like a computing specialization I made it through like two out of the three classes which were mainly like C++ which was like so dry and just all theoretical you know you're working with like visual code or whatever visual studio it's not even visual studio code and they really set you up with almost like industry level stuff you never like see the light of day it's just like a tough language to give to a beginner i think i dropped out of the third class because i was also like a ta at the time like a teaching like assistant and so i was giving like a lecture for a class it was just like a lot of work i graduated with biochem and went to work at like a a cellular like washing machine factory basically where you would just like mine for like leukocytes from like people who donated blood and like those white blood cells would be given to like research facilities in Boston who bought them like um, Novartis and stuff like that so that's a huge business <laughs> just you know you get that first job and then you realize like that jobs kind of suck if you don't pick them or think about them at all <laughs> so you might as well think about it a little more and get stuck with something you like I got into complex system science, 
just because the idea of studying real things like society, the idea of complexity just was so appealing, scientifically speaking, because it's like a little bit antithetical to physics and that physics has this idea that you can like reduce everything. You can understand something by reducing it down. And complexity kind of said you can't, if you reduce it down, you destroy what it is and you've lost your chance of ever understanding it. I shipped over to Boston from LA and discovered that complex systems science was basically data science. So I had to learn Python. I was basically coding Python like every day for a year, just in my Jupyter notebook, hitting like control enter, you know, doing science, right? There was a web team there. They were doing like all this crazy cool stuff, right? With D3 and like these animations and like I could understand data so much better like that. That really got me interested in like what this thing called the browser was. And I remember like when you first opened the console and you're like, what? There's a REPL in here and all this other stuff? Like what's going on? That's kind of how I got into web. From there to Redwood is like another stretch, but that's how I went from being like a biochem major, yeah. That's so similar to my journey because I also started doing Python and same thing, you know, uh, Jupyter Notebooks. And you're in this very specific sort of environment that is easy to work with because it is a little bit like a REPL in the sense that you could just, you know, execute code. But then once you actually want to do anything with it, like you want to actually deploy something, you realize that this is not a very good way to do it. And then you start, you know, expanding out. And then I found that getting to web, it helped me actually see kind of the base layer of some of this stuff. Like you said, it actually made it easier to think about how would I actually visualize some of these data points because it wasn't, the data wasn't buried in this programming environment that was very foreign to you. I learned C++. It was my first C language. I hated it. Our assessment was to build a lovely C++ weather calculator. I know there's people out there that love C++, but to me, it was just like the worst experience I've ever had programming. I've never ever coded Python. I've opened a Python file and looked at it before, but I've never actually uh, ran a Python file. Python's nice. Python's pretty simple. It's, it's very readable. I think that if you're someone who already can program pretty well, you'll pick up Python really quickly if you wanted to. How did you discover Redwood? How'd you get into that? Because I know you've been around since almost the very beginning in terms of like its public launch. We've talked about this with some of our other guests. There's been kind of many levels to Redwood's development. It started just with Peter and Tom many years ago, and then they brought on David and Rob, and then March of this year is kind of when it launched and went public, and you've kind of been around since then at least. I remember when Tom first tweeted about it, I caught Paul Graham's retweets of it, like, hey, like there's this thing called Redwood. Just hearing that news, I didn't want anything to do with it because I was like already in view land trying to get something to work with like Nuxt and like their whole ecosystem. Like at, at the time I was trying to make like a web app for like taking notes because I was like inspired by almost like something similar to like Rome research, if you've heard of that, but that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But I was trying to do something like that, make taking notes like a little more, more like a DAW, like a digital audio workspace, if you know what I mean, just like a few more bells and whistles. So that was also the first time I was ever touching anything on the web. Yeah, I was with Vue and learning like this thing called Redwood came out and Switching to that at the time meant like learning React and everything else. Just it was too big of a jump for me to make. And you can spend so much time picking the right tech that I knew I should focus on like making it. 
whatever I was trying to make instead of like finding the best piece of technology to use. But that obviously didn't work out because uh, I never shipped anything with my NUC stack. You know, it wasn't even a stack. I knew so little. Like at the time, this was when I really didn't know anything about how web application worked. I was so caught up in like the React versus Vue debate, like in that podcast on uh, Full Stack Radio. Retrospectively, that was me thinking like React was a Rails competitor, and I didn't even know what Rails was. 136. Michael Chan, React is not a Rails competitor. I just looked up when I found out about Redwood, and I found out about Redwood on the first day the Full Stack Radio, the episode with Tom Preston Warner, and that was the 22nd of April. So that's when I found out about Redwood. Yeah, it was like early in the year, right? It's really crazy to think about. It feels like a long time ago, but it really, like, it hasn't been. It's just a few months. I find it interesting how the history of Redwood tracks with the history of COVID. Think about, like, the lockdown happened middle of March, and that's right around when the big Redwood announcement happened. So for me, like, the two are very interlinked together in terms of, like, their timeline. That's a good point. I'm, I'm not sure if that's something to brag about, but it is, like, <laughs> it's, it's a fact. When I was trying to make something with Vue, it didn't exactly work, so I decided I needed to work with people, that that was the problem, right? That I couldn't do it by myself. So I started working with like my brother and my friend on a video game actually, because I was more about, I need to find a team of people I can just make anything with at all. I'm sick of working by myself. So we were making like a video game for maybe a few months called uh, using an engine called Godot. And that's actually open source. I tried my first hand at like contributing there. When I came back, from like that hiatus, all of a sudden I had kind of like a clean slate. I was willing to like pick up any piece of technology and I had tried to like contribute. It kind of like made the jump to Redwood a little more tractable because I could, you know, actually use Git on the command line, frankly, because that's not easy to do at all. What type of stuff were you building with it? I don't know. I got into Redwood still with the idea that I was going to make this like notes, digital audio workspace thing. Just even going through the tutorial just like made me realize like yes this is what i need you know like this idea of like a back end at all right i kind of got swept up in the idea of like learning web development because i finally could like because there was a way i could do it so like something that would teach me and the easier thing for me to do when i first started the tutorial and got in the community was just contributing instead of actually building something it was like at the time when the scaffold command you would just run it and it would put all the files kind of like in the base directory. And I thought, come on, why can't I say like, go to the admin subdirectory? You guys got so close is how I felt. I decided, yeah, I'll make it happen. And I made that contribution. Yeah, I just kept going contribution, contribution after that. Cause once you get one in and you realize like people like appreciate your work like so much and then other people use it. And it's just like a really addicting feeling. I'm definitely turning my attention to like building stuff now that I've contributed so much. You know, that's why we're here, right? Or that's why we got into Redwood was to build something with it. I'm starting with a more basic app besides like the notes taking app I wanted to do. It's more of just like a little, a calendar app. I'll share the repo later, but I, I plan to like release it in this month. And it's not like a groundbreaking achievement or anything. It's just like as someone who's contributed so much, I need to build something with it to really like move forward and making more meaningful contributions. And I'm definitely more interested in like local first apps. That kind of gets into one of the challenges of Redwood is this idea of like state management, frankly, and like 
the difference between state and caching, and Redwood's not really set up for local first. It's just not obvious, at least. When you say local first, what are you referring to by that? With Apollo, you wait to hear back from the server before you consider like data to be updated, really, still. That's not what I really want to do at all. I want to just like make the mutation locally. Say, like, hey, server, like I did this. Sync it whenever you can. The server is really just more of like a persistence, like a data store. It's not doing that much else, at least at first. Is it asynchronous UI is one of the terms people use to do it? For example, you click submit and your UI will then be like, I'm now going to wait until you've submitted this to the server and returned something from the server. But instead, you just carry on doing what you're doing. It's a lot more prevalent in React Native, because obviously that's a mobile app, where your connection could just drop out, for example. Yeah, exactly. It is more like the experience of a mobile app. And if I can go back to Full Stack Radio again, that podcast with Rich Harris, I think, the author of Svelte, and the idea that like SBAs can be so much more. I'm definitely on the boat of like SBAs should be competing with like mobile applications. They should have that experience of like, you never really even know if your network is on or off. I look at Redwood as something to build applications with, whereas when I was listening to the Next conference, like they described Next as shipping pages to the web, and I thought that was like a really great description and a really great goal to have, but I look at Redwood as shipping like these really like interactive applications. We quickly touched on this whole concept with Tom. We're going to be seen in a few years almost React taking a sidestep and React Native taking over. Expo is now fully supporting React Native for the web. While yes, it's React, but it's also React Native, the way certain things are done, like the routing, is all different. A good example of React Native for the web is Twitter's web app. That's made with React Native for the web. This whole philosophy of you have React and then you have React Native, I think we're going to get to a point where one of them will take over. I think it's going to be React Native in the longer run, but we're just not there yet. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I had no idea you could use React Native like to make a web application, so that's that's really cool. So React Native Web was started by a Twitter engineer. Nicholas was his username, but he moved on to work at Facebook on their React Native team. Expo is one of these platforms that say, we're basically going to bridge the gap between native components and the JavaScript. They've now confirmed that they're taking on React Native Web into the main fold. But the problem with that currently is React Native Web sits behind the current branch of React Native. But the opportunities are opening. It's a real interesting look forward as well. That you could do today is build an application in React Native Web and I think you could get it working with Redwood using Apollo. Well, we're just one PR away, it sounds like. <laughs> That's all it'll take. We are, but it needs a lot of Webpack transpiling and... Whatever else happens in Webpack. <laughs> one of the things that I really enjoy about the Redwood community, there's a big emphasis on writing. For me, I always kind of experience like this tension between spending more time writing or spending more time coding or thinking of myself as like a writer versus a programmer. And I know you spend a decent amount of time writing as well. So I'm curious if this is something you kind of think about as well. 
This is a really interesting question. So the roles you think of yourself as, it's not at the top of my consciousness, so to speak. Writing came first and like this love of writing and reading. Towards the end of my senior year in college, I took a class on Nabokov. Like before that, I was a reader, but I didn't really read any like literature, but that class like blew my mind some organ in my body could now sense like why literature was so cool and I still think it is <laughs> frankly uh, I definitely like got into web development to make tools for writing I don't write as much as I should and I don't program as much as I should either but uh, writing was my first like love so to speak even now I don't like see myself that much as like a programmer you know I don't practice programming things just to practice them or like do any cones or study any algorithms. I still think programming is really cool. I guess I feel more like I feel smarter when I'm writing and like I have the peaks of my consciousness or when I'm like reading or writing. So I still think like, uh, at least for me, it's like a higher activity that I want to pursue. And I'm using like programming to make it even more so. Like, I still don't know if that's like the right way to do things or not. But part of the reason I got into like Redwood was to like build my own tools it kind of falls in that category of like I think there should be more tools frankly just at all <laughs> it's still easier for me to write like with a paper and pencil right and that may never change but I just thought like I should give a shot at making frankly anything else just seems like very uncreative solutions keep popping up there should be more is all <laughs> yeah there was a point in time when on my Twitter, it used to say, blogging programmer making programs for blogs, because I was kind of thinking the same thing as, um, you know, making tools to write with. Writing, to me, just feels more human. Coding, it's, when you get really into it, it can be this whole world onto itself that can be very alien from anything else you're doing, and all your friends and family who don't do it, they have no idea what you're doing, and it's impossible for you to, like, explain it to them. And so for me, writing was a way for me to kind of bridge that gap and to connect with more of the human element of what I was doing, because to me, language is just one of the most natural things that, that we do as people. It's why I love podcasts. I find language really, really interesting. So for me, writing kind of goes along with that. You write the Redwood newsletter. So how'd you fall into that? So many people were doing so many cool things with Redwood. When I was learning Vue, there was like a Vue newsletter that I would use a lot to find out about stuff I never would have found out about otherwise, like a new podcast or like a new view library. And I wanted Redwood to have the same thing. I just like took everything I saw on like the, the forum and summed it up and gave it to Tom and said like, this is cool, right? And he was like, yeah, that's how I kind of fell into it. My goal with that is just to like, David helped me like really put this into words, was to help you use Redwood better. That's really like the only goal it has. I just want to highlight the amazing work people are doing. And I want anyone as a Redwood user to know the latest thing about the framework. Cause like we're adding stuff all the time and V21, like that Prisma foreign key thing is like huge. I just don't want things like that to go unnoticed. Cause it's like, you know, the release notes are where we're adding so many things in it. It's hard to keep up really. So I just want to give you like another way in to the top. <laughs> Why is the foreign key Prisma update so important? It's just really hard to make a generator. That syntax is quite a lot and it's a little unintuitive. It's it's like a very big 
jump for people to make. Can we like kind of explain like what this is that that we're talking? We define this a little more clearly. You could probably explain it better than me. You'd probably use fancier terms than me, so you go. Well, whichever of us is more confused probably could explain it better. But it's it's just like a near prisma schema. If you have a model that's connected in another way to another model, when you actually go about entering data with that, and you want to make, say, you have a person or like a, a people model and a post model, like I guess author and post would be better here. If you want to make a new post, like with any kind of regular scaffold you'd use to like update your data, and you want to say like, here's a new post and this is the author. The syntax for that is very verbose. Like you can't just say like the author's name. You have to in Prisma land, you have to say author, and then that's like an object, and you have to say connect, and you connect on a certain property of the model of the author, and it could be their name or their ID. They're trying to give you flexibility, but it's like another step to make that just seems like, why can't I just give you their name? Why do we have to go through this contractual language? To just take it a step higher, if you've never actually worked with Prisma 2, what Prisma 2 basically is, is a CRUD builder. How you'd start a query, say for example, you wanted to get all the blog posts, you would say db.blogpost.com find one or find many or create for example when you've got that dot create that's when it becomes a function and how do you start adding and removing data it's all done through an object basis so you start writing your object and while there was multiple ways to do it it tend to come down to clear defined schema such as where would have the id in the unique variables or data and then when you wanted to connect, say, two tables together through this query builder, you would have to then open another object and it comes down to two things, connect or create. They've simplified it to now just say, if I'm going to say author.id, that means I'm going to be connecting this author. Previously, you would have then had to do author and then write an object inside of author that says connect and then another object inside of that that says ID and the author's ID. So really they've turned three layered object into one overall key. Is that a good explanation? Yeah, you nailed it. So you can use fancy words, Chris. Well, they're just the fancy words that the object tells you to. And for me personally, this is where TypeScript shines and makes it so very easy to see what is available. But to what I understand, when you have JS config, that also tells VS Code to use them DB types. Ah oh man, I wish I knew more TypeScript at all. I know for sure, like, I can only understand Prisma because of what you're saying. Is because I hit control space and it's like, okay, this is what I can do. Yeah, so if you don't know, that's a TypeScript feature. JS.conf.json, that's basically the same syntax of tsconf, so the TypeScript options file. So to what I understand is it's giving you the benefits of TypeScript without giving you TypeScript. Everything that I do is in TypeScript, so I don't truly know how well it gives you them typings. It seems a little weird. You might as well just use TypeScript. It seems like, like why are we inventing these halfway points that are like, I don't know. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's like if you want to type your language, just type your language. Yeah. This is where Prisma is really good in TypeScript because what you can do is you can export types out of Prisma. For example, you know you've got a data query. You're going to create a object, a blog post, and you're going to say there's going to be a title, a description, and a date, right? Instead of you writing that, you can extract that typing out of Prisma too. So if it gets updated in the background later, it will automatically be updating your code without you having to manually code that type. So that's a really good feature of Prisma too as well, if you didn't know. Yeah, I kind of like upgraded a little bit when I discovered how much Prisma relied on TypeScript or like how much the types could help me. When you go in your node modules folder, there's like a dot Prisma or something. And it's just like everything you could do is in that folder and you don't have to go to their docs anymore. It's just like very clear and straightforward. It's helpful to have that there. And that's the, the funny thing that you've just brought up. A few weeks ago, me and Antti was talking about TypeScript. I think it was with David and it was like, why do you use TypeScript? It was like, because I can just command click the type and totally understand what I need without looking at any documentation. It's great to know that other people have them same like, aha. Yeah, when I hear people talk about why TypeScript is awesome, that's usually the very first thing they say is the introspection into your types and what you can actually do with them. So it's very self-documenting in that respect. But you still should document. Don't get me wrong. You should still document. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about just a couple other things that you've contributed to the Redwood verse. You've done a lot of work in integrating Tailwind with Redwood. Why Tailwind? I just gave the people what they wanted, you know? <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm not a Tailwind fanatic per se, but I just, there's so much interest. And honestly, like I spin up new Redwood apps like all the time, especially to try out something I'm contributing or like if someone has a problem. So like having a setup command for Tailwind was just like, it just made a ton of sense. Cause I, yeah, I don't want to open postcss.config or whatever. And I'm just gonna have to look that up like every time. I think Tailwind, it's very, interesting it's probably the most interesting like project in open source in some ways in one aspect like it's innovative just in terms of what it's doing for css and like rethinking best practices but it's also innovative in that it's like an open source project that is like making money and has a team and like delivering like amazing stuff i think it's like kind of pointing in a direction for how to run a business or like that will help developers out but also like keep you a little more than a float so you can like do more for people in the way you want to. I've never like used another CSS framework like styled components or anything. I think I tried like Bulma when I was with Vue. The idea of using like SAS or CSS and I forgot what the name of it is like where you like do the dash dash is. Oh, BEM. Block element modifier. Yeah, BEM. BEM, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I feel like we could use a little bit of that in the sense of like documenting what your HTML structure is because like I end up with like just a lot of divs or sections and it's not really clear like why this is here, right? Tailwind has been like amazing, like in the same way that TypeScript, you just hover to see what's going on. Tailwind is like the right amount of magic. You know, the CSS really isn't too far away from you. You say you brought Tailwind to the people because they wanted it. Have you heard? of a project called twin.macro and it's the crazy space where you say I want Tailwind Santex to work with styled components. Tailwind in JS. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, Tailwind and JS. It's really crazy because it works, but I had it built into my dashboard. So basically how you would integrate it is actually really ingenious. Instead of writing class name equals BGY, blah, blah, blah. You would literally just write TW equals blah, blah, blah. And then that would then transpile with Babel and styled components and build in the Tailwind CSS and JS. It was kind of crazy. I used it for encapsulation of CSS because I had a project that could go on other customers' websites and you didn't want your CSS to be messed over by theirs. But I still wanted all the benefits of Tailwind. It's a real crazy good project to look up if you have a chance. I'd love to see Redwood just like have more like setup commands for CSS and just like I want to see yeah like what people are doing and especially just like how to get better at it because I do feel like I'd probably still use Tailwind even if I knew more CSS but it, it definitely I use Tailwind so that I don't have to learn CSS frankly like so I can learn as much as I need to. What is more important when it comes to your DOM tree? Is it better to just write class name equals BGY text small, or is it better to then abstract it to a CSS file with this is a card? You then could look at the DOM and see the CSS tag of this is a card, but then you still get all the benefits of Tailwind. When I converted a project to Tailwind, you lost a lot of identity on the DOM tree of what what is. And if you didn't know what it was, you didn't know, you know. <laughs> I think the ultimate solution that makes no sense, class name for your Tailwind styles, and then ID to define what it actually is. Even though you're not going to call the ID anywhere, if someone was to then look at the DOM, you would see the ID said card and the class name says the Tailwind components. But I think this is a question across the whole Tailwind system that everybody's just trying to figure out really. I think Tailwind's answer right now is say like extract it all into a component and then like that component has a name and then you know it's going on. But I just haven't done that yet. I try to abstract as late as possible almost always. And that's actually one thing I like, like about Tailwind a lot is I think the idea of like reusability is like a little overhyped in programming unless you're like making a library which is explicitly for someone else to use it's only slowed me down to like try and design something with the intention of like using it again later i don't mean that in like any sense of like go agile programming or anything i'm like not that i have anything against it but i think tailwind got it right in terms of why are we designing for reusability at first or from the start just sprinkling the tags on the dom structure it's like more than okay just can't believe there was such a hard stigma around that for like years frankly right it's like jsx you know all these things you know once you've done something for so long anything that is different you're instantly gonna be like mm, i don't know about this you don't think about well should i try it first to see if it's actually better or not so i think tailwind and jsx both of those i've heard people describe as just give it five minutes is what they say. Recently, I've been having to build email templates and most of them are in mustachio and handlebars. I'm like, this is still pretty cool that I can just do triple brackets and why React have this? And then you think, because it's built completely different to have that functionality. 
You have written a very well-received post on the community forums that we'll link to about services, and services are a Redwood feature that I know confuse a lot of people. It certainly confused me. Your post was kind of about the mental model for services, at least if I read it correctly, so I'd be kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are on services and what you're trying to accomplish with that post. Yeah, it was around the time when I think Tom went on like the Sam Selikoff podcast or Front End First with Ryan Toronto and just like the interest in services like blew up. I mean, it was always like a super interesting abstraction. It's definitely like the one thing that when he talks to like Rails developers, they seem to like really get into it, right? Of like, oh man, like services, like this is so cool. So I can't relate to it because of that because I was never like a Rails developer, but the mental model for me that made services make more sense was thinking of Prisma as a service because right now it has kind of like a very special place in a Redwood app, but it's more like a service that we just decided that you should have pretty much always or like that's why you're using Redwood is because you want a database, but you shouldn't think of like Prisma as being like more special than like another service that you could just integrate just as well. So like Stripe or something like that. I think. Prisma is tied a little too closely to services, and that's why people get confused. They always think that a service means a Prisma model or something like that. A service is just like an abstraction for making sure things stay maintainable, like in the long run. And I've never made a Redwood app that lasted more than like a week or something. So I <laughs> there's other maintainability aspects that I still have to learn before I like really two years later and I'm like, thank God for services or something like that. The Jamstack is all about APIs and I think services are the place for APIs because the APIs might change a lot. Jamstack is so young, the landscape is changing all the time, but like Redwood has to think about making something to last a long time, right? That's why it's called Redwood. So services are kind of like the shield against the Jamstack ecosystem in a bit of a way. Call your service whatever you want and configure the APIs as you need them right now. Just because you change how your comment service works doesn't mean the rest of your app is going to like suffer for it in any way. You brought up that you can use Stripe. I've done this in my application. You communicate through the Redwood API to Stripe. But if you look at how the Redwood tutorial, it helps you generate services through Prisma. But does Redwood help you generate a service for Stripe or a different third-party service? No. Now I need to look at the API that I'm trying to go to and create my own SDL file and create all the middle grounds. When I integrated Stripe, the hardest point of that was saying where to cut Stripe's graph off because Stripe's API is interconnecting to the card machines to Bitcoins. That takes a bit of experience to know where Redwood starts and Redwood ends. I used Prisma before I used Redwood, so I understood the glue that made it all magic. But if we think about your first time using it, Anthony, you can, I'm pretty sure you'd had this experience. You go, oh wow, this is really cool magic. I bet it's just Redwood doing it all. Yeah, for me, I ran into this working with Fauna because when you use Fauna, you basically, or the way I was doing it, you just rip out Prisma and then rewrite your services. And like you were saying, Dom, the services as they are now are very tied into Prisma. So by taking Prisma out and having to write your own services, that kind of gives you a better idea of what they're actually for. And yeah, it's about kind of reaching into like Fauna's API and how do you interact with it? It's only linked with Prisma 
because the generators are currently linked with Prisma. If we could generate, say, Stripe code or Fauna code, then you could say the argument is no longer that it's just Prisma. Well, they're using the db.find many, like they're using the Prisma commands in the services. Yes. See, this is the complex part. What is the service? I hear of my smart internet bank has 3,000 microservices. And to what I understand of Redwood, every single file, you could say that's a microservice in the, the bigger architecture of things. That is definitely like one of the hardest parts of Redwood. Well, I do think that the API side is like amazing. It's years ahead of where it should be when you really get into it. Just they knew exactly what they wanted. When you get into like how the resolvers are tied to, it's just like a, a thing of beauty, I guess. <laughs> so, I would say to me personally, the Redwood API side, 10 out of 10, perfect. The Redwood website, six out of 10, still got a long way to go, but it's getting there. I agree with you and I think Peter would too. I've expressed concerns of, you know, just like why haven't I shipped something? And it's definitely because front end is hard. Redwood makes the hard possible, but we're still talking about hard stuff here. And I think that's where we have to remind ourselves we're building a full stack app. We're full stack engineers at that point, And that is a crazy hard job. There's obviously parts of it that are still easy, but it's a, it's a hard endeavor. Redwood's getting there, but it's still got a long way to go in terms of how do we take all them processes on getting from the feature idea to the feature in production? I believe the ABI side of that is done, right? That That's almost down to a point. But the website is we're all still trying to figure out as well. In building my note-taking app, I, I had to learn like a lot about state. I almost feel like the website needs its own set of services in a way. There's a lot more logic than you think. I brought in libraries like XState and things like that. And if you want to build like a really feature-rich app, you have to understand like why there's so many state management libraries and what they're all good at. You just can't skip it. It's actually pretty fun when you get into it and stop like thinking that it's like a chore. For some reason, like we all think it's a chore, right? Like, oh my God, like another state management library. And I've been kind of like a critic of Apollo a little bit just because they used to use Redux. So it was very clear that Apollo is getting your data and putting it in the state management library. And now it's like they're trying to do both. I'm not saying that it's a impossible to do so but i just don't see many like very clear examples of like how it's done in a real world app and i just think yeah like we have to make that more clear because it's really not just like if you want to just use your scaffolds you can and i've like seen apps like that but for what i want to do like a local first app scaffolds just aren't going to cut it or like that's not fast enough snappy enough for a user how do you do that like redwood has to i think we could do more for people building stuff do you think Redwood should have a opinionated state manager picked? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd say no, because state is too important depending on what you're building. I think you have to understand state. I just don't think you can like skip it is all I'm saying. And I think we have to just give people like a few examples of this is the kind of app I'm building and I'm using the state management library. You know, there's just like too many different front-end apps you could make. State is one of these wide questions, right? Even I find it so gray of like, what's the right answer? In my Next.js app, I use pool state. 
because it's quite easy to interact with hooks and have a global state. But then in my Redwood app, I just focus on the state being replicated by the server. Is just using Apollo's state management through queries good enough? Yeah, it's a hard question. Where do you start with state and where do you stop? I.e. how global do you go? Because React has these really cool hooks of use state and you're like, great, I can use state. But then you're like, yeah, but then I might want to change the menu from the nav bar, for example, and that's in a different component. Well, then I could do prop drilling. You're passing the prop down, but then you're like, oh, this is getting a bit complex. And then I feel like you're sitting on the, the crossroads of the hardest decision in your life. Will I go with React Context, Redux, MobX, XState, or something else? And how do you make that decision? I do not know. Yeah, it's a critical decision. You say it's critical. It's what do you want from it? Do you want to be, say, I want to run this action that changes my state? Or do you just want to be a bit more Wild West and just say, pull the hook and update it to this? To bring it back down to the point of Redwood and the website, that side of the application of Redwood is not covered right now. And if Redwood is your first time using these technologies, that could hit you off guard massively. Totally. I don't know if Redwood is doing it any worse than anything else, but for what Redwood wants to do, which is like take care of you as a developer, really, it's kind of like hanging you out to dry a little bit on the website. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to actually managing your state, it's hard to know like when is Redwood going to do this for me and when does it when does it have nothing for me, right? Right now, as a developer using Redwood, I'm like, what's the way to do this? What's the Redwood way to do this? Where is it? So if Redwood doesn't have one, I'd like to know. And it's like, hey, you better figure this out because Redwood isn't going to figure it out for you. Like just knowing when to make that mental switch, we need to communicate if there's ever going to be a point like that. I, I still think we can have opinions around state, but if Redwood's ever not going to like take care of you, then we kind of have to like explicitly say that because I think it's too easy to fall into the idea that there's a way to do this and I'm doing it wrong, right? Like that's not what you want to feel as a developer. Maybe the the right answer here, we take a note out of the Redwood forms. If you understand what the Redwood forms is, forms is a massive part of any React application. I prefer the raw interface of React hook form, but I understand the abstractions Redwood is doing on top of that. But you could say, I don't like this way and go with Formic. And that's totally accessible in the Redwood web. So maybe the golden goose, the next module to be added to the NPM repo would be an opinionated state manager. Time will tell. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here, Dom. Do you have any closing thoughts, things you're excited for, things you think the Redwood team should be thinking about? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, what you guys are doing like is amazing, and I'm super looking forward to seeing you learn with Jason, Anthony. That That is like blowing my mind. <laughs> for future of Redwood, one thing that's easy to forget is Redwood is multi-side. That is pretty weird compared to all the other frameworks. I just think like that is easy to forget that we're ideally talking about making like many different sides and 
where it feels like other frameworks are just focusing on like the web, we really have a lot more in mind. I think something like Dino might be really in the cards in the future because of that, but uh, that is a whole, probably a whole nother problem that hopefully won't be a problem for a while, but might be a bit of a pain to get integrated depending on what the future of Node is. But I think that's kind of like on the horizon. I got my eyes on Dino for sure. Dino scares me because I don't want TypeScript to and JavaScript to die. I'm a JavaScript child. I do not want to move on to anything else. JavaScript for all. It's like the one ring in Lord of the Rings for me. You can still write JavaScript in Dino. I don't even ask me how. That doesn't make sense in my head. I don't even know how that would work. <laughs> I guess that's it for this episode. Thank you for your time, Dom. Yeah, it's a pleasure.